take a, take a look at your little sheet there. Um, Calvin's going to pass around a sheet. If you, don't, if you don't have it, raise your hand and Calvin will get you a little sheet. Um, these sheets are basically passages of uh, the book of Ephesians. We've been working through our way this semester through the book of Ephesians. And just because just I wasn't here last week, I just want to give just a quick little summary of where we've been leading up to chapter 3 in this book in the New Testament. Uh, it's Paul's letter to a church in a city called Ephesus, hence Ephesians. But here's, here's kind of a basic summary. Paul is looking at this thing called the gospel from all kinds of different angles. In chapter 1, he's looking at the gospel, the good news of what God has done, along the axis of time, meaning in chapter 1 he's talking about what God has done, is in the middle of doing, and what God will do. And then you get to chapter 2, and then Paul starts talking about the gospel along the, the, the lines of space dimensions, meaning uh, he starts looking at what God has done first vertically. In the first half of chapter one, 2, it's all about God reconciling people to himself, and in the second half of chapter 2, he's talking about what God has done horizontally meaning the way that God reconciles us to each other. So hopefully you're seeing each week as Paul is, is talking about this thing called the gospel, he's coming at it from several different angles. And hopefully you're seeing that it's much more expansive and multi-layered and bigger than maybe we thought it was. You know, we typically think the gospel is kind of the, the ABCs of Christianity. It's sort of the elementary basics. But what I want you to begin to see is it's the A to Z. It's everything that Christianity is. This is what it's all about. So he's going to continue this theme tonight in chapter 3. And so let's just look at it beginning in verse 1 and we'll work through uh, verse 14. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus." I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am the less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept excuse me, kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. This is God's word. Let me uh, just pray real quickly, and then we'll jump in and take a look at it, okay? Father, I ask that in these next few moments, you would come and attend to your scripture. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and open up our eyes and unclog our ears so that we would be able to see and, and be able to hear maybe the gospel in a fresh way, maybe the gospel for the first time. 
Uh, we have no hope of learning this or understanding this apart from your help. So we ask for your help now, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I want to begin just by asking two questions tonight. Question number one. What is it that is dominating your life, practically speaking? What, what is it that is kind of your core priority that you base everything about your life on that bleeds out into every dimension of your life, practically speaking? So just to give an example, uh, it may be a boyfriend or a girlfriend. For some of you, you may have a boyfriend or your girlfriend, and that may be the thing that is controlling and dominating your life in the sense that it's monopolizing all of your time. It's kind of taking up all of your emotional bandwidth. It's kind of eating up everything about you. Or it could be the same exact thing. You may not have a boyfriend or girlfriend, but it could still be the thing that's controlling your life, right? In the sense that it's what you think about. It's what you daydream about. It it affects the way that you dress. It affects, you know, how you act. Just an example. What is it for you? What is that core priority that is controlling and dominating your life? It's question number one. Question number two. Whatever that thing is, what kind of person is that making you? It's, it's, it's not a neutral thing. It's going to affect you in some way. Is it making you more neurotic? Is it making you more angry, more controlling, more happy, more depressed? What kind of person is it making you? Just to kind of set this up a, a little bit further, uh, one of my favorite bands is the Ava Brothers. And um, I just heard, I just saw hands doing this. And um, uh, they're... Uh, Their album, Mignonette, has this great song on it called Swept Away. If you're familiar, it's a great song. It's it's this really interesting look about uh, this guy's love for his wife or his girlfriend. I don't know who it's about. But whoever it's about, he's talking about the way that his love for this person has completely reoriented everything about his life. Here's just a couple examples of the lyrics. Line one. Who cares about tomorrow? What more is tomorrow than just another day? When you swept me away. You know, the excitement about tomorrow is now just another day in light of being swept away. Here's, the, here's uh, lyric number two. I see the end of the rainbow, but what more is a rainbow than colors out of reach? You know, a beautiful and majestic rainbow now kind of gets redefined as just colors out of reach because he's swept away by this love for this person. Here's the, here's the last one. While life is ever-changing, but I always find a constant and comfort in your love. Interesting, right? What I want you to see is that his love for this person is not just this little add-on to his life. It is a holistic experience where it is redefining everything about him. The way that he sees tomorrow. The way that he sees rainbows and double rainbows. The way that he sees all kinds of stuff is affected by his love for this person. That is the dominating thing that is controlling his life. And tonight, we get a little insight into what that is for Paul. We get a little window into what that thing is for him that is that overriding, dominating, controlling factor. And the way that he explains it is a little interesting. So just look at the text. Paul kind of gets going in verse 1. He starts setting up this sentence. And if you notice, he just kind of breaks. And for the next 12 verses, he goes on this tangent So look at it in verse 1. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Okay, surely you have heard about the administration. There's no verb in that first sentence. He sets this thing up and it's like, okay, okay. Surely you have heard about what God has done for me. It's really interesting. What was it about what he said in verse 1 that spins him out into this tangent in verse 2, which he goes through verse 
13. Actually, if you notice, in verse 1, he says, for this reason, and he's talking about everything that kind of came before in chapter 2, but he actually picks up his thought again in verse 14. If you see it down at the bottom, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. So he's probably going to say something like this. I, or for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner, I'm going to start praying for you. But something about what he said spins him out into a weird direction. And the question is, what is it? What does he say in verse 1 that gets him thinking in a tangent? Well, he starts thinking about his life. Because right here he writes, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And he has to hit pause. Because he has to think about the fact of where he is. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he was a Jewish religious elitist that hated Jesus. And if anybody believed in Jesus, he would help track them down to try and kill them. And now he says, I am in prison for this guy named Jesus. Something has radically changed about my life. And he says, I'm doing it for the sake of Gentiles. Which if you know anything about the Jewish Gentile cultural divide and hostility, these are the kind of people that Paul thought was the scum of the earth. I want nothing to do with them. And now he says, I'm in prison for you. Something has come in and has totally flipped his whole world upside down. And he's going to tell us what it is. It's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus. Something has come in and redefined everything for him. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this tangent that he spins out in for the rest of our time. And I, and I want you to see that he helps us answer two different questions. And you can follow along in your little outline there. It's down at the bottom. The two questions he helps us answer are what the gospel is and what the gospel does. Very simple. What, what the gospel is and what the gospel does. Okay? So let's look at the first question. What the gospel is. And, and he comes at this kind of from two different lenses. First, it's kind of, as, at least as I conceptualize it, a telescopic lens where he kind of looks at the big picture and then the microscopic lens where he kind of looks at the small picture. So let's look at one of these each at a time if you're tracking with me. Telescope. You pull out your telescopes and let's look at what the gospel is kind of on the big scale. You may have picked up on this, but he starts talking about this mystery. It's, it's kind of bizarre. Look at it in verse 3. It says, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation. Now, what is that? What is he talking about there? Mystery. Well, for us, when we hear the word mystery, at least in my mind, it, it, it means something like uh, we don't know what it is, right? It's a mystery. It's, you know, if you think about a murder mystery novel, the whole thing is filled with suspense because you don't know what's going on. You don't know who the murderer is until the ending. But Paul uses that word in a very different way. It's not about something that is completely hidden. It, it's about something that was once hidden and is now being revealed. Something was once concealed and is now out in the open. I mean, just uh, look at the way that he talks about it in verse 4. He says, In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, then verse 5, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles. Right? Uh, something was concealed and it is now revealed. And what is it? Very simply, it is God's plan for the world. What God plans on doing for the world is now being revealed through this thing that Jesus has done. And he flat out tells you in verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Here's what he's saying. He said, before, we didn't know what God was going to do with the world. 
And because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, now this mystery is made known. Basically, God's big plan to unite enemies together, to unite the nations of the world under Jesus. Big picture. God plans on fixing and restoring and healing the world through this thing called the gospel. But step back and just look at what, what Paul, how Paul views history. He sees all of history along the axis of the cross, the gospel. Jesus is the central turning point of all of history. And the way that he views all of humanity is, is through the lens of the gospel. All of humanity united together under Jesus because of what Jesus has done. His view of the world is enormous and it is infused with purpose and meaning. Y'all remember that movie, uh, Garden State? Uh, a lot of people have said that it is the defining movie for the postmodern generation, for, for your generation, because it's exploring issues of identity and authenticity and what do we do with our pain, especially our, our relationship with our, our family. Do we you know, stuff it with, with uh, medication? How, how out in the open do we be? It's all about identity, all about kind of just personal angst and struggle. And if you remember, kind of the defining point of this movie is the three characters come upon this like, huge hole. It's like a crater. I, can't, I don't remember the, the basic thing. It's just this huge like, void in the earth. And they come upon it and they lean over it and they begin shouting into it. And at first you're like, odd. <laughs> that wouldn't be my reaction if I come upon a big hole. But that's actually the picture that's on the front cover of the DVD, I think, is, is these three characters just screaming into this hole. Why are they doing that? You know what they're doing? And the, and the whole point of that movie is they are looking at the emptiness and the void that all of them feel and they're screaming their frustration into it because they feel it. Every one of them feels it in that movie. But what's the answer? What's the movie's answer to that, that instinctual gut frustration about just the lack of meaning with the world? It just ends on an open-ended note. There is no answer. Sort of the whole point of the movie is we hate the void. We hate the emptiness. We know it's there, but we don't know what to do about it. But what if your life wasn't just this empty storyline? What if your life wasn't just this collection of meaningless events stacked one after the other? What if there was actually something bigger, that there was purpose, and every detail of your life had meaning? And had purpose. For those of you in the room who don't identify yourselves as Christians tonight, let me just talk to you for a second. Because you have to answer this question the same way that everybody has to answer this question. is What do I do with this existential question of meaning and purpose in the world? Because if you remove God from the equation, anything sort of transcendent, then you have to come up with some sort of explanation for meaning. And your options are, one, to say that meaning is, is lost. There is no meaning. There is no ultimate meaning, which is, which is uh, called nihilism. Or your other option is to say, well, I'll, I'll just create my own meaning in my world. My own personal experiences will just define my own meaning for my own life, which is called existentialism. Those are your options if you remove God from the equation. But I want you to see that both of these options conflict with that deep, instinctual gut feeling that you have that there has to be more. It has to be more than just no meaning at all, and there has to be more than just, well, I just get to define meaning for my life. You know what that gut feeling is like, right? Let's just imagine, picture it, for example, that you're backpacking through Europe, which would be nice. 
especially in this weather. And uh, you find yourself in some old European home in Austria. And for whatever reason, you're rummaging through the attic of this uh, home that you find yourself in, and you come upon this box that has sheet music, you know, notes and everything. And uh, you go downstairs to the grand piano and you put up the sheet music. And because you can sight read, uh, you, you begin pounding this music out. And it's beautiful and it's wild and it's, and it's harmonic and it has this kind of huge finale to it. And you're like, this is awesome. Who wrote this? Where did this thing come from? And so you call up one of your music expert friends who you've met in Austria and uh, they come over to the house and they start listening, and you're pounding this thing out for them, and they identify it and say, you know what this is? This is a lost composition of Mozart. And you're thinking, bling, I just made some money. <laughs> but then once you start playing, you begin to realize, okay, there's something incomplete about this music. There's lots of pauses where the piano is just basically resting, uh, uh, marking time, and then you, you both put together, oh my goodness, this is, this is just a piece of something bigger. There's other musical instruments that, that this music was written for. So, of course, you run back up to the attic, you begin digging through everything, trying to find the other parts for what other instruments Mozart wrote this for, but you come up with nothing. You go back down, and you're like, well, I've got the piano music, I guess. That's all I got. But that's all you got. But what that is is a signpost pointing to the fact that there is something else. You just haven't come across it yet. That gut instinct, that gut feeling that you have that says there's got to be more meaning in this world, there's got to be a purpose to this, all of this, that is a signpost pointing to the fact that there is meaning. There is purpose. Don't quickly just write it off and default into nihilism or existentialism. Begin to explore and take seriously that gut instinct that says there's got to be more because the Bible's answer is that there is. God has a plan, and it is big, and it is enormous, and it is his plan to, to restore the world and to unite the nations together. And when you begin to look through life through that lens, that infuses unbelievable meaning and purpose into every single detail of your life. The question is, do you see it, though? Okay, second thing. Let's look at what the gospel is through the microscopic lens, kind of bring it down to the ground level. Because, you know, if you notice, Paul is up here in the stratosphere talking about all this big picture stuff. And then in verse 7, he just kind of slips in his own little story. So check it out. He says, uh, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. He, st- he starts talking about himself, that this gracious gift that God has given him to be a servant of the gospel, or as some of your translations say, a, a minister of the gospel. The thing that he is preaching is the very thing that has come in and reoriented his entire life. And he tells you what that is in verse 8. It's at the end of verse 8. He says, To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He was going a certain direction with his life. And he came upon what he says is the unsearchable riches of Christ. Or another way to translate it is the incomparable greatness of Jesus. He gets struck and stunned by the beauty of Jesus and who he is and what he has done. And now he can never go back to the way his life was once before. You know, sometimes I'm walking along Sanford Mall with with some of you girls and you spot a guy across the way and you're like, Matt, oh snap, who is that? (laughs) That's what you say. There's something about their attractiveness that just sort of stops you. And you're like, okay, who is that? I have got to meet him. Their hotness, if that is a word, stops you. 
Or if you're in like a coffee shop, you know, you're at Espresso News or, or Crossroads, you, you know, they got uh, music playing softly over the background. You're talking with one of your friends and all of a sudden you're kind of like, whoa, hold up. This is my song. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's something about beauty. There is something about beauty that just stops you. And that's what happened with Paul. He's going through this, through this life and something has stopped him. He got a glimpse of who Jesus is and what he has done. And he says, my life has been forever changed. I can't go back. When you begin to see the beauty of Jesus, that changes your life practically. And you can see it visibly. I mean, look at Paul. He is in prison now. His life is, a, is different from what it was before. Dude was not in prison before he met Jesus. Now he is. When you see Jesus and you see the beauty of who he is and what he has done, and if you claim to love him back, that should have practical implications for your life. Your life should look different. And if it doesn't, then you have to ask yourself some hard questions. So for example, I love and am committed to my wife, Catherine. And that declaration has some very relevant, practical implications for my life now. So for example, I can't just go out to McAdoo's or Boone Saloon every single night now like I want to. Or I can't buy, I can't buy all of my, I can't spend all of our money on books and video games and music. I can't do that anymore. I can't, I can't sleep until 11 and let Catherine take care of Zoe Kate. I can't uh, just pack up and roll out to Charleston for a week and just kick it. <laughs> My love for this woman has implications for my life. It changes my life. Practically speaking, it visibly looks different. And the question is, if you claim to ident- identify with Jesus and to love him, does that affect your life at all? So, so let me just talk to y'all for a second. Those of you in the room that do identify with Jesus and do consider yourselves Christians, if you do claim to follow him, if you do claim to love him, if you do claim that I have been stopped by the beauty of seeing who he is and what he has done, does that affect your life at all? Does your life, does your life look different? Or is Jesus just a nice little religiously decorative accessory to your life? Just a little add-on. And so you do God favors every now and then by showing up to church or showing up to RUF. Is that you? Because if it is, then you have to ask yourself some hard questions. Maybe you haven't actually seen and beheld the beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done yet. Because what Jesus does is he never just comes into your life and leaves it the same. He starts messing stuff up to make you look more like him. He never just leaves it the same. He begins rearranging things. And therefore, your life should look different. So that's what the gospel is. On a big picture, it is God's plan to restore the world. On a small picture, it is God's plan to restore you and to restore me. But I know some of you may be thinking and and trying to consider the meaning of all of this and say, okay, how would my life practically change if I did embrace all this gospel stuff? You know, some of you non-Christians may be looking at all this stuff and say, okay, what would look differently about me if I actually took this stuff seriously? Or for some of you Christians in the room, you may be thinking, okay, I have embraced all this gospel stuff, but how should my life be looking differently? In other words, what does the gospel actually do? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's the second question that we're going to look at tonight. Paul helps us answer what the gospel does practically, meaning what kind of people does it produce? 
Because, I, you know, I've heard, this, I've heard this said before, and some of y'all may have heard something like this. Some, somebody has, has said, you know what the number one cause of atheism is? Christians. <laughs> Meaning, you know, people look at Jesus and say, he's, he's cool, I guess. But then they look at Christians in the way that we live and say, if that's what it's going to look like for me to follow him, I don't know if I'm interested. But I want, what I want you to do is just hit pause on your experience just for a moment. And let's look at Paul's experience and say, how did this experience with the gospel change him? And maybe use, let, let's just use him as a model tonight to see what the gospel did in him may and should affect us the same way. Okay? So here's what the gospel actually does. Let me read it in verse 8. He says, Although I am, the, I am less than the least of all God's people. In Greek, Paul actually makes up a word. He says, I'm the most leastest of all of God's people. He says, look at all of the Christians in the world, rank them, and I am at the bottom of the pile. I'm the worst Christian in the world, is what he's saying. You may be thinking, wow, Paul's having a bad day. But look what he says in the very next, like the same exact same breath. In verse 12, he goes... In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. He is saying we have access to God now, not nosebleed seats either. We have like VIP tickets with a backstage pass. We have direct access to God and therefore we have utter confidence. You go, okay, wait a second, Paul. You said on the one hand that you are very humble and terrible, and you say, on the other hand, you are extremely confident. How can you be this humble and this confident at the same exact time? Because I'm sure you've met people that are very humble and look very humble, you know, in the sense that they kind of beat themselves up a lot and they throw pity parties for themselves all the time and then send out evites for all their friends to come. And, you know, they're not, you wouldn't categorize them as confident. They're humble. They're, you know, Debbie Downers. And then... You've met some really confident, arrogant, cocky people too, right? And there's no way that you would consider them humble, right? They're like Sue from Glee or uh, Stephen Colbert, right? These two things, these two things do, not, do not mesh. And Paul is saying, no, in the gospel, it has made me completely humble and completely confident at the same exact time. And the question is, how does this work? When you begin to understand that the gospel is the only thing that is fueled by this thing called grace, meaning that you do not deserve what God has given you, this is the only thing that produces this kind of person, completely humble and completely confident at the same time. Because if you remember, the gospel is the good news that you are so sinful that Jesus had to die for you, and yet you are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for you. When you put those two things together, this unlocks the, the power where you begin to radically see yourself differently. Because on the one hand, if the cross communicates to you that you are so messed up and sinful and broken that Jesus had to die for you, this is what floors you to the ground. Oh, I'm not that good after all. It took the Son of God to die for me. This humbles you. And yet at the same time, the cross looks at you and says, but no, Jesus was glad to die for you. He wasn't just willing. He was glad to do it. And this is what gives you all of the confidence and the security You put these two things together and you become unbelievably humble and unbelievably confident at the same exact time. Let me try and put some skin on this. This means that you can no longer beat yourself up anymore because Jesus was beaten up for you. And at the same time, you can no longer pat yourself on the back anymore for how great you are. 
because Jesus was beaten up for you. The, the gospel is the thing that says it's not about what you have done. He was good for you. And therefore, this simultaneously undoes your instincts to feel like the man on one side and to feel like a total failure on the other. It just erases that completely. Or think of it like this. You can no longer punish yourself in the same way that you used to. Because the cross looks at you and says, Jesus was punished for you. And at the same time, you have no more basis to be prideful. Because look, Jesus was punished for you. It took Jesus to die for you. You see how it undoes both of these instincts? Only the gospel does this. Only the gospel of grace removes your impulses to be arrogant on the one hand or to be completely humble and depressed on the other. It makes you both humble and yet not self-loathing. Confident, but not arrogant, not cocky. A, a, A humble stability. But it does something else. It takes your eyes off of you. It gives you eyes for other people. It makes you selfless. Look at what Paul's experience is in verse um, uh, 13. It says this, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Paul is in prison, willing to, go tort- willing to be tortured by Romans on behalf of somebody else. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, when you begin to get a hold of the gospel of grace, you don't think more of yourself or less of yourself, you think of yourself less. You see what Jesus, or you see what Paul is doing? His whole life now is beating with the same heartbeat of Jesus. And what's Jesus's, what's at the center of Jesus's heart? Other people. He lived and died and was risen for somebody else. And now Paul has synchronized his heart to Jesus's. And he says, okay, my life now is about other people and I'm willing to be in prison for them. You see how his whole life has been flipped upside down, where he is humble and yet he is confident and his whole life is devoted to others. And he's finally freed from this prison of self-indulgence and self-obsession and everything about him. Now he's about other people. This is what the gospel does. And if you are somebody who has identified with Jesus and say, I'm a Christian and I follow him, and yet it's making you arrogant and proud, then you have missed it. If you identify with Jesus and it is making you uh, depressed and guilt-ridden and you just feel like you're crushed under the weight of everything that you're doing wrong, you have missed it too. If you are identifying with Jesus and, it, it, and your spirituality is basically about you, what I get out of church, what I get out of RUF, how my quiet times are doing, how my prayer life is doing. If that's what the extent of your spirituality is and it has nothing to do with other people and loving them, you have missed it. The gospel comes in and it redefines everything. It gives you a humble confidence and it makes your life about other people. If this is not what the gospel is doing, I invite you to take a fresh look at it and to tell yourself I am this sinful so that Jesus had to die for me, and yet I am so loved and treasured that Jesus was glad to die for me. And let those two things come together and watch what it does in your life. All right, let me close here and end where we began. And I just want to ask you those same two questions that I asked you at the very beginning. Question one, what is it that is controlling your life practically? 
What is it that is dominating your practical existence? Is it any, does, does it come close to the gospel? How big the gospel is, how, how enormous the gospel is on the one hand to say, God is going to fix the world one day. And how practical and relevant it is on the other so that it addresses every single thing about your life, your insecurities, your loneliness, your desires. Is it, it, does it come anywhere close to this, being this big and yet this relevant and practical? Question two. Whatever that thing is for you, what kind of person is it making you? Is it making you like this? Humble, confident, secure, but not cocky, devoted to other people? I mean, wouldn't you want to hang out with people like this? Wouldn't you want to be people like this? Whatever it is, if that thing that is controlling your life, if it is not the gospel, it will not produce this. And the invitation of this passage is to go back, take a fresh look at the gospel, maybe for a second time, and let it challenge you the way that you think and let it redefine everything about you. Consider that an invitation tonight. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that uh, you would give us eyes to behold the beauty of Jesus. He who was broken for people like us who ourselves are broken. He, He who gave up everything for people who did not deserve it. I pray that the good news of that would not just be this neat little addition to our life, but it would come in and explode and rearrange everything about our life. I need you to do that in mine, and these folks need you to do it in theirs. Would you be so kind as to do that now? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.